0: Occasionally, civilized human beings get together and decide it's time to massacre other human beings in an orderly and organized fashion. One of the key initial ingredients to almost all of these massacres is the creation of scapegoats, people that some or all of a society's problems are blamed on. Once you do that, it's just a short walk to convincing your society that those scapegoats need to be eliminated. This episode looks at one of those events from history, but sadly this sort of thing is not just contained to history we've done it in the past we're doing it right now and we may well do it again in the future if we're not paying attention this is all the test Hello, and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, everyone. Months ago, Lee, you said that you wanted to cover this topic, the yeah, that Salem teaches, witch trials. That
1: teaches me a lesson, because yeah. because after we after I said that, we launched into four episodes on the history of witchcraft to get us to this point,
0: right? Yeah, It in the same way that, <laughs> as we'll see, the Salem witch trials sort of spiraled out of control, Our attempt to research the Salem witch trials also spiraled out of control, but we have finally arrived at what you wanted to talk about.
1: Yeah, we finally arrived at Salem.
0: I mean, when I first learned about Salem years ago, to me, it was the story of a town that went mad. Yeah. But then after all of the research that we've done, not just in witches in particular, but just conspiracies in general, I feel like Salem takes on a very different look to me. Yeah. And now it doesn't seem like this weird aberration where a town goes mad. It seems like the like the natural conclusion to a lot of pre-existing structures and things. And we'll get into that, I guess.
1: Yeah, we'll get to the conclusions maybe closer to the end than the beginning. That's where they belong, I guess. <laughs> but I think you're right that it, it really speaks to an ever-present danger, I think, in our society. And not one that's as much of an aberration as we like to think.
0: And when we say danger, it's like this is legit a danger, because why don't we start by saying, what is the death toll to this?
1: Okay, so there's an official death toll of people who were executed for having practiced witchcraft in Salem in the year 1692, and that death toll is 19 people and two dogs. Hmm. Yeah, I know the dogs. Almost, you know, we've we've learned this about me in previous episodes. I am you get um, you get sadder about I, dead dogs. I kind of do. That though does not encompass the death toll in its totality, because people died in prison, uh, waiting uh, their trial and potential execution, and they are not counted among the nineteen. There is, and we'll get to this. For example, an infant whose mother is jailed, the infant is jailed with her, Uh, like it's a couple of months old, this infant, still suckling from its mother, and it dies. Now, it died probably of something like exposure or hypothermia, but that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't in this horrendous jail cell. So the death toll is larger than the official one, if you were to, say, Google the Salem death toll. But then, and I always feel like I need to add this when we talk about death tolls, There's that tragedy that can't be articulated in a death toll. So a mother is accused, uh, tried, and then executed for witchcraft. She may leave seven or eight children behind. And, And they are people who go on to live the rest of their life with this incredible trauma Of seeing their mother dragged away, and I mean, I'm not gonna, this is not gonna be part of the narrative, but there are really sad moments where kids are sort of looking at their mom being dragged out of the house and never see them again. So there's an official death toll. There is then a greater death toll, and then there is a sort of a trauma toll. Exactly, an incalculable uh, toll of trauma that that follows. Also, the accusers later in life, guilt, um, shame, uh, can't live down the reputation of having, you know, like essentially killed a bunch of innocent people. It is a disaster.
0: You can't just say this only would ever happen in Salem at this time. Something like this could happen again and will happen
1: again. That's right. I think Salem is almost a kind of a template for this social dynamic that it, that that takes off over and over and over again in um certainly modern political cultures i think that today there are salems happening around the world as you say i'm sure it's coming you know a big one in our society potentially and there have been you know important ones in the past certainly um the red scare in the 1950s is often linked uh with the, the Salem witch trials because it shared a lot of the same dynamics. So I think you're right. This is something that is following us throughout uh, modern political history.
0: So in order to understand what could be in the future and what is happening now, let's look at the specifics.
1: What happened in Salem? Okay. We're talking about events that happened in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Now, Salem is a town in New England. Specifically, it's in Essex County. Uh, It's not far away from Boston. Boston is the big town. But Salem is, at least historically and certainly saw itself, as not that much less important than Boston. In Salem, as as Nathan pointed out, 19 people are executed for practicing witchcraft in the year 1692. The, the, The crisis really lasts about nine months. There are about 140 to 180 people who are accused. There's about 55 people who actually stand trial and 19 people who are executed. 1692 Salem is only really three generations out from essentially founding the Republic. Like, it, Plymouth Rock is incorporated as a colony in 1620. You know, you have people whose who's living memory includes the very founders, uh, like, in terms of settler terms, the, um, you know, the European Americans who will later be recognized as the kind of archetypal arch-Americans. You know,
0: in the mythological origin story of the United States. E-
1: exactly. Obviously, we know that there are indigenous people who have been living here for you know probably tens of thousands of years. But what we're talking, we're looking at this very much from the um, Salem Puritans perspective, and so the generation of 1692 is sort of living in the shadow of this great generation that has actually you know made the voyage, founded colonies, and started European settlements in America. Your life is quite, you know, mundane and a bit miserable or perhaps very miserable. And all of the grandiose dreams, you know, did not necessarily come to fruition. And why not? It's probably because your generation sucks, you know, and is not uh, living up to the glory of the previous generation.
0: Well, and particularly because from a religious perspective they would have thought that their situation on earth was a reflection of god's view towards them
1: yeah you're okay you're you're exactly right um well, am, I, am I jumping ahead you are well you're just jumping ahead to the very next paragraph i've got here oh, which absolutely. is like well who are these people right mm-hmm. so we have discussed in previous episodes what was going on in england there has been religious strife In England, there has been a contest between, among other groups, but essentially in England, between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, Protestants are running the show, but are they really as... Are they
0: pure enough?
1: Exactly. And then there's a group in England who are disparagingly called by others the Puritans, And so this group in England, they want to purify the church of what they consider to be maybe Catholic vestiges or superstitious vestiges or basically it's just not serious enough. Now, the Puritans actually, there's two different responses to the fact that they don't like how holy their church is or that their church is not pure and uh, holy enough. One group says, well, we should stay and make it better. But the truly radical ones, they're like, you know what, it's a lost cause. We can't, we, there's no point in trying to fix the church in it's England. It's too corrupt, it's too papist. Exactly. Let's go and start again. So.
0: In this brand new country that God has given to us.
1: Exactly. And those are the people who found Salem, Massachusetts. I mean, they found other uh, other towns and colonies in New England, especially. But the, these are you can trace it. Like these are the descendants of the hardcore Puritanical radicals of England, self-selected, who are like, you know what? I'd rather start again in effective wilderness for their perspective. Again, we recognize that they're not coming to Virgin Lands, but they'd rather face those hardships. And what they, to your earlier point, Nathan, what they want to do is they want to, what they call, build a city on a hill. And that is to say, a shining example of spiritual perfection that will be a kind of a guiding light to all the other Christian communities, especially back in England. And you know, the idea being that people back in England will look to Salem and are like, ah, well there is a truly just and holy community. So they're gonna be the purest
0: of the Puritans. Yeah. When people talk about purity, I always get nervous. I feel like nothing good ever
1: comes from it. Yeah. They are clearly, by like their daily experience, not living in a city next to God, right? Like their their neighbors are quarrelsome, the winters are harsh, um, the sermons are lackluster and boring, the days are full of tedium, and yet, weirdly... People are still doing all kinds of sinful things, you know, like maids are running away at night hooking up with, you know, who knows, the stable hand or something. And a lot of these indiscretions were, uh, because of the poverty, and because of this sort of density of living, these indiscretions were happening under the noses of, you know, the more sober leaders of society. I mean, you could wake up And so there'd be like six or more people living in a two-bedroom house, and you'd wake up at night, and you'd be hearing some funny stuff going on in the very bed you're sleeping in What kind (laughs) of purity is this? So, you know, it was very evident to people that despite the high hopes of their ancestors that things were not working out, but they were also hardcore, you know, religious fanatics, basically, who were extremely worried that this sinful behavior was going to exact some revenge from God. And all the bad stuff that was going on in their community, they brought back to the fact that they were still sinful and they needed to do some kind of purge.
0: And there was like a ton of bad stuff. There were wars going on with both the indigenous people who had already lived there, uh, the French.
1: No, you're right. So I was thinking about it very much in the terms of what's the web of tensions for the, the Salem residents of sixteen ninety two. Yeah, these these people who are here now. And we've talked about the role of fear, just in terms of priming people for being more suspicious, being more paranoid, being uh, better at pattern recognition, which is also of illusory patterns.
0: Basically, it makes them more prime to find conspiracies. Exactly. To find false conspiracies in particular.
1: So what exactly are they afraid of? Well, um, there's three enemies uh, that that the citizens of Salem have besides each other. <laughs> Primary amongst them are the indigenous people of that area, the Wabanaki. Now, This is actually the term of a treaty that refers to a group, a a set of different group of indigenous peoples of this area. The Wabanaki are not entirely pleased with the fact that there are these foreigners who are sort of settling here, taking stuff, and that displeasure is vented, among other things, in what they at that time called Indian wars. So essentially armed conflicts between the indigenous inhabitants and the new settlers who have just, you know, as, as we've said, have just shown up 60, 70 years ago and they just keep showing up. There's and they keep more and saying, more of hey,
0: them. this is our place. Yeah. The people who are living here were like, uh, you guys are brand new.
1: Yeah. So, so they were afraid on that account. Then there are the French. The French, I often forget this, were in North America making a large colonial play in North America. And so they were, they were rivals of uh, the English. Now, they, interestingly, also made alliances with indigenous groups, including the Wabanaki, against English settlers. So, you have the French as a problem just of their own because they're making colonial plays.
0: French are always a
1: problem. Right? There's... There's the animosity in Europe between France and England. So if they go to war, there's also that kind of extends to North America. And they're always at war. We've belabored that in a previous episode. And then the French also sometimes make alliances with the indigenous groups. And so there's another group to worry about.
0: So if you're one of the English settlers, even though you have invaded another another land, you have invaded and occupied it, From your perspective, you're like, everyone's against us. Yeah. This is our land and everyone's against us.
1: Yeah, exactly. We haven't quite mentioned everyone yet because there's a third enemy, which are the Catholics. Oh, yes, of course. We remember how much that mattered in England. And we remember that it's the Puritans the hardcore Puritans who are leaving England because they can't stand the, you know, the, pa- the, the papists, the, the remainder of Catholicism, like that, the vestiges, the, ling- the
0: lingering remnants of, so, the, of the papists. So they're out.
1: They bring that animosity and resentment with them, and of course, the French are Catholic, so that that works nicely in terms of a kind of a tableau. Knowing whose team who's on. Yeah, and tableau of hate. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like it's if, a
0: rich tapestry, right? Uh, we hate anyway, them because they're French and because they're Catholic.
1: Now they do have smaller hatreds towards other Protestant groups, so they do They don't hate. They do hate other Protestants who are Protestant a different way from themselves. Well, because um, those aren't as pure. <laughs> it's
0: got to stay pure.
1: The, it is an irony, though, that this group leaves a place which they experienced as religious um, intolerance to then just perpetuate the religious intolerance in the place they've gone to so that they could have more religious tolerance. Okay, whatever. It's worth noting that all of these groups are represented to and by the citizens of Salem as in somehow in league working for working with the devil. So this kind of stuff in the ideology of the citizens of Salem is all getting mixed up together. And as you say, they're quite fearful and this leaves them open to conspiratorial thought. But within Salem itself, there's an interesting tension between the ministers and the laity. So the ministers who come there to preach, they're the focal point of the community. But they're rarely paid. So they'll they'll negotiate a contract with the community. And, you know, it'll have a salary plus bonuses like firewood and a place to live and stuff like that. But then when you actually show up, they don't they just don't pay you. Like they just won't pay you. Uh, Like, for for weeks or months on end, they don't, and then when they pay you, they pay you half what you're supposed to get paid. Um, And this becomes like a really big issue. And uh, Salem goes through a number of ministers in a couple of years because they either quit or they get mad or the community gets mad at them. And this wouldn't matter if it were anybody except for the minister who really has a very important role in defining and determining the ideological direction of the community. There's just animosity amongst the town folk itself. And I even have a little quote here. The minister before Samuel Parris, who you're going to meet in a moment, he gets a letter from a parishioner in which, it, in which the parishioner writes, Brother is against brother, and neighbors against neighbor, all quarreling and smiting one another.
0: Oh man, quarreling and smiting? You know you're dealing with an old-timey letter
1: when they use smiting. He smote me. He <laughs> smote me in the brain pan. So, and, it, you know, it's a cold, desolate place. I mean, New England today is a, is a lovely, gentrified, blah, blah, blah. But back then, it's like, you know, it's the Canadian north is what you can imagine. I mean, it's just like endless winters and, and, and no warmth. And the to- the toil of- And they haven't really been living there
0: for long enough— generationally, to have built up a real good understanding on how to live yeah. in this area. Exactly,
1: exactly, and the, the, the groups that could help them,
0: they're not talking to them. No, because they consider them the enemy and they're at war with them. Right,
1: exactly. All right, so that that tells us, you now you know what happened in Salem, a bunch of people who were killed for witchcraft. You know what the place, was like roughly in 1692, their concerns, the people who were there, the things that they were worried about. So then let's get into the story of what actually went down. And, and our metaphor for this, and we've used it often before, is that of a viral infection, where this kind of bad idea, essentially, that there are witches out there who are hurting people and we need to persecute those witches, starts in a particular place infects one person who infects another person, that person infects another person, and then you have an outbreak. You do because of and I'm struggling to find the word, what there's like the super there's there in any in any disease there's super these, spreaders. Yeah. So okay. So then you then get after a couple of people have been infected, you get these kind of super spreaders who suddenly infect lots and lots of people. And and that's what I wanted to sort of trace for the most part of the story. So, so here's the story. Samuel Paris. It, it starts with him. He's the minister. He is an interesting guy in his own right, A quite a worldly man. He starts life in Barbados. Um, he becomes a plantation owner. He's a bad business person. He must sell it. Eventually, he ends up in Barbado- uh sorry, in Boston, and uh, through twists and turns as the minister of Salem. For the Salem story, the first accusations of witchcraft happen in Paris's household. He himself has two daughters and a son, but his eldest daughter is Elizabeth or Betty Paris, and they have another girl living with them, and that's 11-year-old Abigail Williams. It actually starts with Abigail Williams, and she experiences... The symptoms of being the victim of witchcraft. Soon after, it's Betty, that is Elizabeth Paris's daughter, um, the younger one. She also starts to display some kind of symptoms of witchcraft. They then accuse the slave in the house, Tituba, of being a witch. There's more than these two girls who eventually become the accusers and the prime movers. And it's interesting to note that they're all quite closely related to each other, both in terms of age, but in living conditions, often it's in the same house and then the best friend of somebody in another house it gets everybody in their house infected with this so but these
0: are all people who are spending a lot of time
1: together they're yeah. in close quarters exactly so you know uh Bet- Betty and Abigail they spend basically every day together I mean there's a the Puritan girls uh, of this period are in Incredibly central part of the household like they are doing labor from the time they wake up in the morning to the time They go to bed a five-year-old girl is expected to be you know contributing labor to the household So they infect their friends. So Annie Putnam uh, is friends with Abigail and Betty So Annie then is the next one uh, to be infected Mercy Lewis is the servant girl in Annie Putnam's house And Mary Walcott is Annie's best friend, and they know Elizabeth Hubbard. And so, you know, these girls all sort of start to show symptoms, similar sets of symptoms, as each other. Annie, I should just say, uh, she deserves special attention because uh, when when, when the proverbial stuff really hits the fan, she ends up accusing more people than most of the others combined. So what does it feel like to be the victim of a witch attack in Salem in the 17th century? So the girls complained of pinches and pricks. The list of symptoms balloons as this phenomenon balloons. So it starts out with pinches and pricks. They kind of occasionally bark like dogs. They will go into hysterical fits of laughter. Their eyes will roll back into their head. They might be struck with hysterical outbursts of some sort, there's temporary blindness, temporary deafness, temporary numbness, there's fainting fits. Like a lot of these symptoms are the kinds of things that you could, you could easily make yourself exhibit. You know, like I could now roll around on the floor, roll my eyes. In a... I'm wondering, because you did say either before we started or already while we were recording, these symptoms are real. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. They are they are like very real symptoms and and Paris is very worried. Paris, the minister, in whose house it all started. Well he's does, got a room full of barking girls now. Yeah, and it's a he his position is not, oh this is all nonsense and witchcraft doesn't exist. He is very concerned and is worried, brings in two physicians to have a look at her. This is after he's tried praying and all of this kind of stuff didn't work, so he brings in some physicians. One of them, Dr. William Griggs, suggests that the children have been afflicted by Satan. Now, this Dr. Griggs... Doctor. Yes, and, and, and Nathan is using scare quotes here. He was, even at that time, not actually a doctor, but being a doctor at that time, like a medical doctor, meant essentially nothing. Well, it meant
0: that you were calling yourself a doctor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have more medical knowledge than those dudes. Well, so you're in the future. You have an advantage. I, thats true. But it's just like this is this is back in the time when the four humors were still like a valid medical theory, and and leeches galore. Exactly. You treat things by bleeding them, and okay, drilling um, holes in heads, whatever it takes. But I was wondering. Now we've talked in the past in past episodes about, you know, real symptoms that people really experience. And I was wondering if this reminded you of any of that.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the work we did on the Havana syndrome, where people who were working in an embassy in Havana, Cuba, showed very real symptoms, like, and very debilitating symptoms, where they were having terrible headaches, where they were finding themselves to be confused and they weren't able to concentrate and they had aches and pains. These things were legitimate and real. However, there is a couple possibilities as far as what is causing that. It could be an external force. In the case of Havana, maybe it is some weird new weapon. In the case of Salem, maybe it is witchcraft. But of course, there's another possibility. And that is the possibility of what used to be called mass hysteria. And we refer to as mass psychogenic illness. Yeah. And in mass psychogenic illness, it is an illness. It's not somebody faking it. It's not somebody, you know, pretending. You do experience these symptoms and you even have physical symptoms sometimes. And basically, it's, it's a combination of the fact that we're social beings and the fact that as social beings, we uh, really pick up on what other people are putting down. So if somebody else is acting in a certain way, we're more likely to act in that way. If somebody is showing symptoms, we're more likely to show the symptoms. And also, of course, the nocebo effect, which is like the placebo effect. The placebo effect, if you think something is going to work, then it'll feel like it's working. The nocebo effect is if you think something will have a harmful impact on you, then you will experience that harmful impact on you.
1: It did sound to me as though this is what was happening with the girls. Well, because of the contagious
0: nature, because these girls all knew each other really well, because they spent a lot of time together, those are all conditions in which a mass psychogenic illness spreads far more easily.
1: Yeah, exactly. Why would the girls, and uh, for that matter, more importantly, the adults in the room who are watching this, why do they think witches and not something else?
0: Well, because what we see depends entirely on what we believe. And so if you live in a world... Of Witchcraft when you look at something strange. It's very easy to see that as being caused by witchcraft. They don't live in A a place that has sort of scientific approaches to psychology and neurology or anything like that We want explanations and we will grab on to those explanations that we are familiar with These people would have been very familiar with the idea of witches even in their laws and their codes coming from England there were anti witch laws on the books so this wasn't some sort of new and unusual situation. Witches were a part of their understanding of the universe.
1: And so when you see something weird going on, witches. Yeah. It, 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 for, it, it made for a really convenient explanation for all kinds of embarrassing and inconvenient things. So, you know, impotence could be blamed on witches. Witches. <laughs> <Bousy> witches. <laughs> and, you know, livestock disappear. And, oh. and think about, like, this guy is,
0: like, a, he's a preacher, he's a minister, mm. and he's got kids who are disobeying. Right. So it being his fault, that would be difficult for him to, to come to terms with. And yes. it would be embarrassing. I need an explanation. Something weird is happening. I'm probably genuinely worried about my kids. Yeah. But also I'm worried about how this looks to the other townsfolk, and, I, and I'm concerned that people are going to think maybe this is because of something I'm doing as the father or as the, as the caregiver. But witches sort of takes all of that away. Exactly.
1: There is another perverse consequence of a theology in which bad things happen to good people. It's almost like this is a sign, bizarrely, that God is paying attention to us. He's testing us. He's sending us the witches, and we're at the forefront of fighting evil. So there's another way in which a lot of... Well-meaning adults, uh, again, you know, steeped in this kind of religious ideology, are quite excited about this phenomenon happening. It almost validates everything that they've been worried about.
0: Right, because we all want to be the main characters in the story. Yeah. We don't want to just be these side characters that weird things happen too. It's like, no, no, this has got to be for some sort of very important reason. Yeah, exactly. And if it's a very important reason to the Puritans, that's got Satan written all over it.
1: Exactly, exactly. So far... Although some of the other girls have been infected essentially through, um, uh, in a sense, close contact with the initial people who were infected, the, the girls in the Paris household.
0: So basically, I'm a little kid. I'm hanging out with another little kid. That little kid starts barking and twitching. I'm going to
1: start barking and twitching. Yeah, that's right. But so far, it's a sort of a contained event. And it's certainly not the first time something like this has happened. But there is something now that happens in this story that sort of elevates it to the next level. And what happens is that Paris and his wife, um, they have to leave town, they leave their kids behind, in the sort of care of their neighbor, Mary Sibley. Now she decides she's going to find out who is bewitching them. And the way this is done, apparently according to Mary Sibley, is there is an old English sort of counter magic spell that you can do. So what she does is she bakes what's called a witch cake. She takes the urine of the two initially infected girls. Gross. And bakes it into a cake which she then feeds the household dog. Gross. It's not clear exactly how this is supposed to work. Maybe Because it's magic. Yeah, but maybe it's never
0: entirely clear how magic is. Yeah, supposed exactly.
1: To work. Exactly. Okay, so maybe I'm giving it too much credit. Right. Um so and then the the kids Start naming people. First, it starts with Tituba. Tituba is the one who is... Now, she's the household slave. But then, they go on to name other people as well. Okay, now this is a problem. Paris gets back from his little puritanical holiday, and he freaks out. First of all, he's extremely upset that witchcraft has been countered with counter magic. Yeah. And in a minister's house, of all places. I mean, it's just... Because there there isn't good magic
0: and bad magic in this belief system. Magic is bad. Magic is satanic.
1: Exactly. So the fact that you would do this, it's just outrageous. just bringing in more Satan. Right? And of course, as you said earlier, it also matters, his public standing also matters. So now you've got like witchcraft being practiced in the house of the minister. I mean, can you it even ranges. go to his sermons anymore? Like, I, I would stop. Right? But if you stop, then you're maybe just as in peril. I oh, mean, man. now everybody in the community is betwixt and between. The issue here is that what starts to happen is the accusations now become public. Now, this is a surprise to me, that in the past ministers, when when in other communities when this happened, certainly not all the time, but there was an effort to keep the uh, those who were accused of having been witches to keep their name secret. And I think that's really important because once the accusations become public, the genie really has left the bottle. So so Paris loses it. He gets really mad at Mary Sibley. And this is a direct quote from him, and I think it is one of the most prescient things that is said in the entire thing. He says, quote, By this means, the devil has been raised among us. And I think he's absolutely right. Not in the literal Christian sense that we now have, you know, you've actually called the devil. But this is the moment when we go from what could have fizzled out as just another excess of youth and it turns into a moral panic.
0: And now people are going to
1: die. Exactly.
0: Which do you think Paris meant? Do you think he meant you've literally allowed Satan in by practicing magic? Or do you think it's the more poetic, now look what you have done. You have sort of let a metaphorical Satan
1: in amongst us by causing a moral panic. So, Because I'm guessing it's the first one. I think, he is, I think he's very literal. I have to be honest with you. So we have a problem. We have a culprit. And we have authority figures taking this very seriously. Does this remind you of anything?
0: Well, now we're getting into sort of the area of the moral panic. Exactly. When you've identified a problem in your society and then you sort of bring out maybe a scapegoat yeah. to try to sort of hang that problem on and you have this sort of official response. Right. That can lead to some really wild times.
1: In terms of... Who is named? So I, I said it was the, the house slave in, in Paris's household, Tichuba. But now there are two more people who are named, uh, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Do you know anything about them? Well, they weren't privileged members
0: of the community. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, they were vulnerable members of exactly.
1: the community. Exactly. Again, like I mean, it's almost textbook stuff here. They that, were
0: older, they were considered to be kind of cranky. Yeah. One of them was was like a beggar who would so, often have to go around and, and try to get food and money S- from other Sarah people. Sarah
1: Good, you're talking about Sarah Good, right? And uh, yeah, so she has been described as a part-time itinerant beggar. So she finds herself in need of help. Yeah, will just give you an example of who she is. So she finds herself in need of help. And there is a couple who kind of take pity on her and bring her into their house. So she lives with them for six months, but they kick her out. Like, they can't stand her. She sounds quite cranky. They, they're like, we can't stand you anymore. They kick her out, and in thanks, she curses them and their livestock. You know? This is who she was. Like, she was a cranky, disagreeable, potentially alcoholic, smoking, foul-mouthed, aggressive, bossy person.
0: All of which made her a very vulnerable person to being scapegoated by this community.
1: She got screwed out of a massive inheritance. And this is not the first woman to whom this had happened. So her father was actually very well-to-do. But when he died, the estate, because she was a woman, went to some other man. Like, oh, I think it was actually like her husband or her sister's husband. Anyway, it went somewhere else. And she was just completely muscled out of like anything. So she was turned into a beggar. And, you know, I mean, I'm cranky at the best of times. If I had a litany of, you know, this terrible stuff happening. Anyway, okay, so Sarah Good's not not nice. Sarah Osborne, she is uh, accused by Sarah Good. And this, you can now start to see both the infection of being bewitched in terms of the kids are sort of infecting each other with these symptoms. But now also the infection of the... Of the witch, the perpetrator, one person accuses another who accuses another. So Tituba accuses Sarah Good. Sarah Good accuses Sarah Osborne. Now, Sarah Osborne, she hadn't gone to church in a number of years.
0: Suspicious. Right. Very Um,
1: suspicious. She had a land dispute with the most powerful family, the Putnam family, the richest, most powerful family in Salem. Sarah was a proud woman. She had lovers. So, Shocking. you know, it was, she was absolutely a scandal. In terms of scapegoats, we have a slave, a social outcast, and a poor person. The whole town is in on it. You know, like, this is, a, this is a big thing. Like, before, it was a couple of girls who were bewitched, and the town didn't know about it, and they were interested, and people were coming by the Paris' household. But now it's like, oh, we know who the witches are. And it's, you know, now it becomes, like, much more serious, because there hadn't been a witch outbreak like this in a small town before in, 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 in New England. Again, this like validates a lot of the theology about you are the front line between good and evil and Satan is in your community and trying to pervert you and uh, and, and keep you out of heaven. Basically, now we are in the moral panic because we have victims and victim uh, uh, perpetrators and things.
0: There, there's a target now for all of the feelings of of unease of all the feelings of fear and frustration now there's a target that all of those feelings can be directed towards and that is
1: these three women exactly so they are brought to trial and um Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne are tried first in that order both deny being witches you know there's things like well did you curse the the livestock and there were also awkward things where Sarah Good will have uttered a curse, and then, like, a few weeks later, a cow dies in a mysterious way, and then, you know, the, the family's like, well, you know, clearly. And, and, of course, you also remember that kind of stuff. Like, if somebody curses you and nothing happens— You forget about you it. You probably forget about it. If somebody curses you and something happens, you make a causal connection. Confirmation bias. Exactly. So far, so good in the sense that this is still kind of run-of-the-mill stuff. Right? There have been previous witch trials in the United States, in New England, just a decade earlier. There had been a woman who had actually been accused, tried, and then murdered or executed for witchcraft. But things take another turn, and that's when Tichiba is brought onto the stand. The accused are already treated as guilty. Mm-hmm. When did you make a pact with Satan? Uh, Why did you make a pact? Why are you hurting these children? How many times? You know, there was never, it was almost like being in a police inquisition as opposed to being in a kind of courtroom dedicated to arguments and logic and stuff like that. But as I say, things take a turn when Tituba takes the stand. Because for whatever reason, and Nathan, maybe you've got some theories about this. For whatever reason, Tichipa really leans into it. So she goes full hog, I am a witch. I know other witches. Here's what we are doing. Here's what's happened. Here's what I've seen. I mean, she embellishes like like she is a very good storyteller. And she talks about uh, flying to the Sabbath at night on broomsticks, and she saw these people fly and those people fly. And this story really opens the floodgates because now, and we talked about this before. We talked about how people don't believe that there that somebody will give a false confession, even though statistically this stuff happens quite often. And so now the prosecution, as it were, and by this I'm using this in a very expansive sense, like those people in the community who believe that witches were running amok, and they now have confirmation from the person who would not confirm it were it not true, which is an accused witch. Why would this person possibly say something like this if it were not true, right?
0: I mean, we've seen this in the past. We've seen that a lot of the witch panics that were in Europe and in England and in Scotland, they were based on confessions. But the thing is that there are a lot of ways to get confessions out of a person. And as strange as it might seem, false confessions are extremely common. And when somebody is confessing to things that seem impossible, for example, flying on broomsticks to Sabbats, yeah. where there are like hundreds of other people there, yeah. like things that just simply can't be the case... We have to ask ourselves, okay, so why is this person saying this thing? Now, in the case of a lot of the witch trials that we looked at before, they were coerced through violence, through torture. Now, was that the case with
1: Tituba? Well, when she is first accused, I don't know how to put this politely, uh, Samuel Paris. Well, I think when we're dealing with the owning of other human beings, we're
0: long past politeness.
1: Okay, Samuel Paris beats the living daylights out of
0: her. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, yeah, that's how that starts. Yeah. And so, I mean, that gives us, I think that's before the coercion in the courtroom. I mean, there's a certain kind of coercion. I think that happens just by virtue of authority. You know, when, when you are a member of an, an underprivileged, underrepresented, under-resourced community, and you then find yourself in front of the lords and magistrates and the big wigs and the, you know, the, all of that kind of stuff, there is an almost an implied coercion there as well.
0: Well, there is a real strong temptation, I would assume, to tell the people what they wanted to hear. Yeah. And what these people want to hear is this story about witchcraft. Yeah. And so part of you might think, if I give them what they want, things won't be as bad for me.
1: Yeah. This, in a sense, Tichibas' confession validates everything, right? So, from the Puritan's perspective, say, the ministers, the judges, the people who believe this, we have real symptoms in real people, right? Then we have the accusation of witchcraft, which is supported discursively in the community as as a completely valid and, uh, you know, a real thing. And then... You've got the confession of an actual witch.
0: Yeah, it seems like we've we've got it all at this point.
1: You kind of do, right? I mean, when you have different standards of evidence and when you believe this stuff is real, okay. So this marks, I think, the beginning of a full-blown crisis because now people just start accusing each other. And I have an absolutely not conclusive and all-encompassing list, but just to give you a sense. March 12th, Martha Corey is accused. March 19th, Rebecca Nurse is accused. March 23rd, four-year-old, can I, do I have to repeat? Four-year-old Dorcas Good, who is the daughter of Sarah Good, is accused. April 3rd, Sarah Cloyce, who is Rebecca's nurse's sister, is accused. April 4th, Elizabeth Proctor. April 18th, now things get going. Bridget Bishop, Abigail Hobbs, Mary Warren, and Giles Corey. Now, this just keeps going. As we say, we had somewhere between 140 and 180 accusations in that nine-month period And they really get going in March, and they kind of end in September. So now we're we're beginning the real descent into the crisis. Like, now, people, it's gotten serious. Uh, You wait for your trial in prison, then you are tried. If you are guilty, you will be executed. And their term for it is hanged by the neck until dead.
0: So... uh You might be asking, why is there this massive explosion in accusations of witches? And it has, I think, in part to do with the nature of witchcraft as it would have been understood by these people. Witchcraft, by its nature, was a conspiracy. You're not going to be a single witch operating in your little witchy ways. If you were a witch, you were part of a coven. You would be going to these sabbats, these massive witch gatherings and ultimately you would all be working with the head conspirator which is satan you're not going to have a situation where you have one witch in an area
1: no exactly and the fear was that there were something like 700 witches operating in salem and essex county these numbers got got quite staggering and overwhelming but
0: almost you might say unbelievable right Any time you have a situation where people are encouraged to inform on each other, it, it becomes very clear to people very quickly that the best way to protect yourself from being informed on is to inform. Exactly. By accusing someone else of being a witch, I'm demonstrating how much I dislike witches, which makes it less likely that I am one. Exactly. So one of the ways to protect myself from being accused of being a witch is I just start throwing the accusations around myself.
1: Yeah. So much of what I'm saying uh, comes from that book I cited earlier by Stacy Schiff, and she notes that in this flurry of accusations, there's an instance, and this is not at all unique, a daughter accuses her mother. The mother, in turn, accuses her mother. That grandmother then accuses a neighbor and a minister, yep. <laughs> you know, and suddenly just from one accusation, you've got three or four more. So now the community is really dividing up into accuser and accused victim, perpetrator, witch, and witch hunter.
0: And there is sort of a cynical interpretation of this as well, which is it's possible that if, for example, you were having some kind of financial disagreement
1: with somebody. Of course, yeah. Maybe you accuse them of being a witch. Exactly. Well, that's the woman who was executed for witchcraft uh, a decade earlier that I cited earlier in, in, in our discussion on this. It all started with a neighborly dispute where she got into an argument with the neighbor's kids who were screwing around with her laundry and the the whole thing descended. The kids accused her of witchcraft. She was taken to court and boom, she's dead. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's the cynical use of it. There's also the strategic use of it. And then there's the gullible use of it. And, and any any one of those will get you into big trouble if you're on the receiving end and might motivate you, on the other hand, to be the accuser before somebody accuses you.
0: So if you find yourself in the midst
1: of a witch crisis, yeah. what would be your advice? You got to get out. Um, and that's some people did, mostly those who had money. Those people get get the heck out of Dodge if you can. Um, some people did, and they weathered the crisis. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, it's hard I, not to
0: get swept up in it I, I, as one side or the other.
1: Exactly, and I worry often about myself that faced with this kind of stuff, I'm going to take the cynical option and start accusing other people. Nathan's a witch, right? Better you than me. <laughs> That's fair. I'll accept that. Now, the other reason that this stuff works is because it's the girls who are accusing yeah and we for whatever reason believe the girls okay so you know if they had not accused any more people then it this would not have turned into such a disaster but they did they are essentially the ones who keep accusing
0: and it's entirely possible you can imagine it's gotten to the point now where people are getting arrested people are getting right hauled out of their house they can't go back on what they've said now no They're too far gone at this point. There's too much sunk cost. They have to keep it going, or they're in more trouble than anyone.
1: A big facet here, though, is what happens in the courtroom. And I have to say that the court process and what they understood as evidence is a complete scandal to our modern ears. If you were accused of being a witch, you essentially had no hope because of the nature of the evidence against you. The worst is spectral evidence, but I'll, I'll bracket that for the end because the other stuff is pretty outrageous in its own sense. Now, we've talked and you've talked often about a devil's mark or a witch's teat, uh, which is this kind of blemish that's on you your body. You've got a
0: body. freckle, you got a mole, you've got a scar, yeah. you've got a whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. Again, which of us does not have something like that, and uh, this was understood as being the mark of the devil. Mm-hmm. But... It was even worse because sometimes people would get examined more than once. And if that blemish, for whatever reason, disappeared, that was just as bad as if you had it. So there doesn't seem to be much of a way out, you know. No, they... once you get accused, you're in a lot of trouble. So again, like the nature of evidence, it seems to be very haphazard and almost fits the crime, no matter you know who it is and what the crime is. It's almost as
0: if. The whole accusation of witchcraft was nonsense and built on just more nonsense. <laughs> do
1: we need to say that at this point? I mean, it's like, yeah, okay. Then there was the touch test. Now, this actually also reminded me of something that happened in a previous episode. So, what would happen is the accused witch would be in court. Now, the court was a sensation. This you got to think there there is no recreation or yeah, no there is nothing to do in this town. Nothing. There is no theater. There is no music. There is no nothing. If you're a man, you can get hammered. That's that's about the only fun you can have. So so this trial, you know, it's 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 in all senses a show trial. It's where the action is, and and that's where everybody goes. So the courtroom is grand-packed. The girls are there, and the touch test was the the suspected witch is brought to the girls, who are to touch her, or him and um mostly her see what happens and you know you'd get the paroxysms that we ha- we discussed earlier in the episode fainting writhing on the floor barking like dogs paralysis blindness this that whatever whatever now does this r- remind you of anything
0: well this reminds me now of the work of Anton Mesmer exactly who later on would would, would sort of use what he called the manipulation of, of animal magnetism to cause these effects in people. And when we looked into this, it seemed more likely that, again, we're dealing with a combination of placebo, nocebo, mass psychogenic disorder. When you expect something to happen, it's more likely that you then experience that thing happening. When you expect to have a reaction, and also think about the, the drama of this courtroom. And think about all the eyes on you. And there's this woman, and you go, you ne- you grow near her, and you can feel yourself shaking because you're nervous. And then maybe that shaking, maybe that's part of it. Maybe that shaking is the effect. There were
1: other things that happened in the courtroom. You were to recite the Lord's prayer, and if you made any mistake, that was a sign because the devil is trying to keep you away from Scripture. The devil doesn't like Scripture. The devil can't abide Scripture. So if you said it perfectly. That was an indication that you were not a witch. But try saying something absolutely perfectly when there are a couple of hundred people watching you and you know that literally your life is on the line.
0: You're going to get hanged if you get this right.
1: Correctly articulating. I mean, I'm having trouble with my sentence right yeah. now. Correctly articulating every single syllable, little slip up would indicate that you are in fact a witch. But the worst of it, is what's known as spectral evidence. Oh
0: boy, here we go. Well, when we think of evidence, we think of empirical evidence, that evidence that can be measured, that can be sensed, that that exists out here in the physical world. Whereas spectral evidence was supernatural evidence. And like because the nature of the supernatural is that it can't be measured, it can't be observed, it can't be seen, that meant that you could basically just say whatever. You could say, yes, this person has conjured a spirit, and why, the spirit is standing over there right now. I can see it. No one else can see it, but but trust me, it's over there. Like, for example, I have spectral evidence. There's a spirit standing uh, right behind you right now right. that says that you owe me $50. <laughs> ah,
1: but there's one standing behind you that says you owe me 1000 Yeah, but here's the thing <laughs> is that
0: the specter behind you says that the specter behind me is a liar.
1: <laughs> so you can see
0: how productive this argument would <laughs> yeah, be.
1: exactly. <laughs> and that is exactly what happened in court, except that only one side is believed, right? So... So the the witch is accused, and you know, in in the sense of like, well, why did you harm these kids? And and say Sarah Goodman will say, or Sarah Goodsorry, or Sarah Osborne will say, well, I didn't harm them. But then the girls will say, oh, but she's doing it right now. Yep. she's sitting up on the rafters of the court, and then one of the girls will go into a fit. You know, the poor woman is sitting there. You know, uh, hasn't touched the girls, hasn't done any. But how do you combat? the accusation of spectral evidence.
0: Well, because that's the thing about alibis, right? You could say, well, I wasn't even in town when this happened. It's like, ah, but did you send a spirit into the town? Yeah. It's like, oh, man. Like, no, my spirit was like across the county, like doing other things. Yeah. You, you can't. There's, there's no defense against this spectral evidence. It's based on nothing. It's based on no kind of observable
1: facts. Yeah, exactly. And when you are then trying to defend yourself against this stuff, there is really no hope. So now we are in June and uh, we get the first verdict. So Bridget Bishop is pronounced guilty for having practiced witchcraft and she is hanged already on June 10th. Not a whole lot of time. Okay, eight days later, she is hanged. Now she's the first person to officially be executed for witchcraft in Salem, but she's not the first person to die because Sarah Osborne, she had died in prison. And Sarah Good's child, who was suckling when she had been arrested, had also died. Okay. And, and, and this just happens, like, again, we, we mentioned that on the outset, not everybody, the official death toll only counts those officially executed, executed. for witchcraft, not people who died, you know, in the, in the panic, in the sense. On June 29th and 30th, five more people are tried and convicted of witchcraft, and they're executed on the 19th of July. And this goes on, all the while people are also still being accused. So most of those people sentenced to death are hanged or die in prison waiting for their fate. Uh, One exception here is Giles Corey, um, who on September 19th is pressed to death under a pile of stones because he was so infuriated with the court proceedings that he just refused to participate. Like, this is so stupid. I'm not even going to talk to you guys anymore.
0: And so they put like a board, a plank over him and then just started piling on heavy rocks, more and more heavy rocks as his his body was more and more compressed. But he still refused to say anything until finally, apparently the last thing he said was,
1: more weight,
0: which is pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a heck of a way to go out.
1: Yeah. There is though, for me, in this story, a riddle, which is how does this panic end. Like how do we climb down from this disaster? As of September, September is the last month where people are executed for witchcraft. By December, it's essentially over. In January of the following year, there's it's it's done. It's 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 completely finished. By October, there is an official decree that says there are to be no new witch trials. There are a couple of old, like people who had still been accused of being a witch, who are then sentenced to death, but that sentence is commuted, and they are eventually let go. It sort of, kind of, just peters out, and it's a, it's a bizarre, for me, in the same way that we spend so much time trying to understand the beginning, and even the beginning still is, it's not a clear. Causal relationship. There's a lot of different factors that existed and for some reason it it happened and Then for some reason it stopped. Okay. Now I do have a theory as to why I think it stopped But I'm curious if you've got one
0: When we look at events like this Sometimes you just you run out of fervor. Yeah, and and that could have been the case. I mean there's sort of the excitement in those I- initial accusations and in the, the court trials and things like that. And at some point, you just sort of, you lose interest in it. You need to keep that fervor going to keep a panic like this on the front burner. Mm. It could have been people became increasingly worried that you were going to run out of people to accuse. And so people <laughs> were like, maybe it would be better if this kind of ran out before I get caught up in the like accused side of things. Mm. And so, as more and more people are being hanged, you could see how there would be sort of more of a desire to maybe, uh, let's bring this to a close. We've, yeah. we've hanged the appropriate amount of people. Let's not let this go too far. Yeah. By which I mean, let's not let me be hanged.
1: Right. Those are interesting theories. I'm not sure how convinced I am, but I also don't have anything better. So, mm-hmm. let me try a theory, though, which is there were some really interesting, and we've mentioned this surely, Many times before, but there's some really interesting social psychological experiments on conformity and obedience and all this kind of stuff in the yeah in the 60s going into the 70s
0: and basically a lot of stuff that comes out of World War II and the yeah, Holocaust trying to uh, trying to explain what happened there.
1: Well, exactly. So Stanley Milgram, for example, is a a uh, a person of Jewish descent who wonders in the '60s whether Nazism could happen in the United States and designs an experiment to see, you know, would would people kill each other uh, without much prodding? Now, I don't want to belabor that experiment because we've talked about it in the past, and it's actually just better if, if anybody interested Google the Stanley Milgram um, shock, experiment. shock experiment, and you'll get you'll get the whole rundown. But basically. The experiment is quite shocking because uh-huh. it said, ah, yes, that was an unintended pun. I would um, hope so. It was terrible. Ah, all puns are terrible. It was surprising in that it it suggested that a, a large majority, uh, 75% plus, of well-adjusted, reasonable, normal people without violent backgrounds are, are willing to kill other normal, happy people without much product. Uh, it was a really big, you know, it was a big shock. Sorry. It was a big surprise oh, that people would do this. But one of the things that that changed the numbers in terms of would you hurt somebody or kill somebody just because somebody asked you to, one of the things that that changed the response rate was if you saw somebody else say no. If you didn't see anybody else say no, there was a much higher likelihood you were going to go through with it. But if you saw somebody say, resist, say, no, I can't do this, it's against my morality, then other people's willingness to hurt other people really dropped. Basically, heroism is contagious. Yeah. And on October 8th, a Boston merchant, his name is Thomas Brattle, writes a public letter denouncing the use of spectral evidence in the Salem courts. So this letter isn't just circulated in Salem, it's circulated in Essex County, New England, And I think it has the function of a resistor in one of these experiments, an example to the community from outside the community to say, wait a minute, this stuff doesn't make sense. When we reflect on the logic that the community divides up into accused and accusers, this doesn't mean that everybody believes it. It just means that given those two choices, you're better off being an accuser, right? But let's say a bunch of those accusers are actually quite skeptical of spectral evidence or of other things. You know you can't say it yourself because, as we discovered last week... You're going to switch teams. Yeah, right. Denying witchcraft uh, is one indication that you yourself are a witch and stuff like that. But now we've got somebody from the outside being like, hold on, guys. I think this is total nonsense. And I think that gives encouragement to other people in the community to be like and especially after 19 of their community members have been murdered. These are people who you know. They're not just, you know, we're not dealing with a metropolis where 19 people have died and they're strangers to everybody who lives there. These are, you know, deeply embedded members of the community. I think now people start to question, start to resist, start to have thoughts. They're the husbands, wives, childrens, brothers, sisters of those who have died who... I don't know how much they've got left to lose. And I think this letter from the Boston merchant begins the, the necessary change because it's an example of resistance. For those looking for a kind of feel-good story in the sense that the accusers all met some grisly end and saw the errors of their ways, I am afraid I have to disappoint you. While not everybody's life went particularly well, Samuel Paris ends up pretty impoverished, uh, debt ridden, other people, you know, those lives, though, are not outside of the norm of what happened to people in the late 17th century in New England. It wasn't whatever. an easy time to be alive. It wasn't an easy time to be alive. Most of the accusers, the young girls, grow up to have families of their own. Not everybody does. The stain, does follow them to some extent, but again, you don't have the kind of reckoning you would want in a good narrative where the bad people are punished for their bad deeds. A lot of innocent people died, and then people just tried to get on with their life. Now, I just want to end, though, with one kind of bizarre little tidbit, I guess. On September 4th, 1953, Actor Lucille Ball testifies before a modern witch trial court, the House on Un-American Activities Committee. So that's the Red Scare, right? Which proceeded very much like the Salem witch trials. If you were accused, you were doomed. Yeah, only Um, instead
0: of being accused of being a witch, now you're a communist.
1: Exactly. And a lot of people were accused, and it ruined a lot of people's lives. Why do I bring this up? Lucille Ball is a direct descendant of Rebecca Nurse. And Rebecca Nurse, you may remember, is one of the first names I read off on that list of people who were accused of witchcraft, tried, and then killed. And you think that 300 years later, like the actual descendants of the people in one of the most famous witch trials in American, the most famous witch trial in American history, are then again subjected to another witch trial. A secular witch trap. It made me, in a sense, despair. Because, like you said earlier, Nathan, I think this is part of the human condition. It's certainly part of our modern political condition. Witch scares are not the domain of some medieval European backwater. They are part and parcel of our political communities.
0: Yeah, and if I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of dreading the next one.